Luke 17, verses 1 through 6. This is our text today. If you've got a scripture, I'd love to invite you to open up to it. And it says this. And he, that's Jesus, he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'd say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. In the late fall of 1944, uh, the German Nazi army in World War II was just about done fighting. Uh, they had been pushed back in the west by the allied forces, and on the east they were fighting the indomitable Soviets, right? So their space, they had been expanding, expanding, and now by this time they are collapsing, collapsing, and on the retreat. But the Nazis decided to give one final push in the west, and they were hoping to secure this port in Belgium that would give them a much-needed supply line because their, their supplies were so dried up by this point. This, this battle where the, they just pushed forward in, you know, across enemy lines, they pushed forward in one area up toward that port became known as the Battle of the Bulge. So leading up to this intense offensive, the Allied army had become somewhat lackadaisical. And they were just assuming that the war was going to continue to fall, slowly fall into their hands. And so one very opportunistic and brutal commander in the SS army named Otto Scorsini, he launched a desperate but effective plan against the Allies. He, along with a platoon of English-speaking Nazis, dressed themselves up in U.S. uniforms, loaded up into captured U.S. Army vehicles and tanks, and crossed behind Allied lines undetected. This operation, called Operation Grief, was intended to cause confusion and chaos in the midst of this last push for the Nazis. The unit began, so uh, Scorsese's, Scorsini, sorry, not Martin Scorsese. I've been saying that wrong all week. Um, uh, uh, they started out by cutting the communication lines for the allies. And this led to all kinds of malfunction and real problems. But then the next thing that they did is they actually started intercepting the communications and giving the opposite coordinates. So the, the allies started sending these messages uh, thinking that, they, that their reinforcements were going to go to the right place, but they ended up going to the wrong places. This led to all kinds of confusion and, and a, a lot of uh, fear because they, they started to understand something is going wrong here. Something's happening with our communication. Well, eventually some of these people from Operation Grief were caught. This is a very small group of people. Some of them were caught, but even in their imprisonment, they started to spread lies about the effectiveness of, that they had, the reach that they had, the numbers that they had. 
to the extent that some of the people who were the troops who were fighting in the Battle of the Bulge started to become really fearful about those who they were fighting alongside. They started to wonder, is, is this person actually a Nazi? Because what was happening in the secret, in the back shadows, is some of these soldiers had killed U.S. soldiers. A handful of soldiers from a failing army created havoc through deceit for the soon-to-be victorious allies. Does that story sound a little bit familiar? Jesus is the risen and reigning king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Someday he's going to return and establish his reign here. There is no true threat to Jesus' kingdom. Amen? Though some might appear to have their moment for a little bit, this kingdom is unassailable. It's, it's not going to end. It's not going anywhere, no matter how many threats come against it. And we sing these lines uh, from time to time here at Westside, so poignant. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. Amen? So here in chapter 17, Jesus is teaching the disciples who are going to be his ambassadors to the world. They were to represent Jesus, and as his representatives, they needed to be very careful about what they were going to pass on to others around them. And the big idea of, of what Jesus is saying to them in here, here in these six verses is this. Don't create obstacles for the gospel. What we're going to see over and over again this morning is this very simple idea. The gospel is simple. But people are complicated. The gospel is simple. But people are complicated. Now, before we go too far into the message today, I want to explain a little bit about what I mean by that word, the gospel. Now, Jim did a absolutely bang up job explaining the gospel to us this morning. We celebrated and sang the gospel here this morning. But you know what I've come to understand is that we can never get too much gospel. Gospel means good news. And the good news is that Jesus has come, he has died, and he has risen again. But why is that good news? Well, the good news doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless there's also some, maybe some bad news coming first. And the bad news is this. Every single one of us have sinned. We have said to God, no to your authority. We have cut ourselves off from the author of life trying to find some kind of life on our own. Every single one of us has done it. The problem is the wages of that sin, what that sin earns is not like a little bit of punishment. It's not like a little bit of, you know, a fine. The wages of sin is death. We deserve to be cut off from God forever because of our sins. So we are broken people living in a broken world because every single one of us, including me, we have all broken God's good commands. And so we are worthy of being separated from God forever. Okay, that's bad news. Where does the good news come into play? 
The good news is this. God sent his son, Jesus, who perfectly obeyed his laws. Everywhere where we've disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. He came, he lived the perfect life. But instead of just living the perfect life and then saying, told you, told you we could have done it, told you you could have done it. He says this, he says, you can be joined to my perfect life, my perfect life given in your place, my righteousness given to you and what you deserve, that death, that separation from God that we all deserve. Jesus takes it on himself. He pays for it on the cross. That's why Jesus died. He died, but he was also raised again so that we could walk in newness of life and that we could have hope for resurrection on the last day. That's good news. So how do we make that our own? How does that become something that is like applicable to me? Because as I read the scriptures, if, if like Jesus just kind of did that for everybody, there would be no hell. There would be no eternal punishment. The, the, the Half the book of Revelation and all the judgment and all that stuff would, would just be irrelevant. It wouldn't, wouldn't have be coming. The truth is that God is going to still judge sin. And it's these are the people who get in on this gospel. We are united to Jesus by faith. We are united to Jesus by faith. It's believing that Jesus is who he said he is. He's the son of God. It's the believing that Jesus did what he said he was going to do. Give his life for you. And that he was raised from the dead. You can be united with Jesus by believing in him. It's not about cleaning up your life. It's not about fixing yourself. It is first, foremost, and always about faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. The gospel is very simple. So how in the world can we get this wrong? Well, we're going to look at, um, we're going to look here in, in Luke 17 and it says this in the first couple of verses is, and Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It'd be better for him if a millstone, that's like a super heavy stone were hung around his neck and he should be tossed into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus is essentially saying here, listen, because the world is sinful and broken, temptations to sin are, they're going to come for sure. Okay. But don't let them come through you. You're my representatives. You're my ambassadors. Don't let those temptations to sin come through you. I love my ESV. I quoted the ESV up here. I read the ASV, ESV and I have for years. But I have to say, this is one part where I just flat out disagree with the translation. And it's not because I know more than the ESV guys. I read their commentaries and everything. I trust them. But, but here I just, I feel like they just missed it a little bit. See, the common word for sin used throughout the, the New Testament is hamartia, right? So it's, it's hamartia. That's, that's what sin generally means. It's missing the mark is the idea. But the word that Jesus uses here isn't the word commonly used for sin. It's the word scandalon. It's kind of the difference between a screw-up and a scandal. There's a pretty big difference. They're related, but they're still distinct. A scandal is way more involved. And it's, a scandal on is actually where we get our English word scandal. And, and it's used about 45 times in the New Testament. And I know I'm starting to lose some of you here, literally. Um, but 
Um, it's used, it's used a bunch of times in the New Testament, but this is, this is what I want to clarify here. This is, this is the distinction. Let's look at it in two places. One is in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, it says this. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, that's, if your eye causes you to scandalon, not hamartia, scandalon. Tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, every single one of us have sinned with our eyes. So why are we all walking around here with two eyes? I I think what Jesus is saying here is that if your lustful appetites are causing such a stumbling block to you that it's going to cause you to fall away from the Lord, from the simple gospel message, it's better to go without that eye. He's not saying just uh, missing the mark. He's talking about scandalon. He's talking about a stumbling block. And I think this is really uh, clear here in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, you remember it's the parable of the sower. Remember, the sower goes out to sow. There's four kinds of uh, soils that he sows on. One, it's on the pathway, right? The second one is the place where there's not very much soil. It's just kind of shallow soil, kind of rocky ground. The third one is among the weeds, and the fourth one is the good soil. So here in the second soil, the rocky ground, it says this. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he scandalon. Immediately he falls away. The word translated fall away here is scandal on this person's faith is compromised because it has no root. So the faith withers and dies. It falls away. So it's a lot more than just committing a sin here that Jesus is talking about in our passage. The word scandal on means a stumbling block that causes you to fall away from faith. So what's Jesus talking about here in our passage in Luke 17? What are stumbling blocks that we may create for others that could lead them to fall away? I see at least three kinds of stumbling blocks that lead to falling away here. The first is abuse, or I would say harshness. These are sinful behaviors that do overwhelming damage to others' faith that could cause them to reject Jesus. This could be sexual abuse in your past. It could be undue harshness and overbearing rule. It could be the breaking of marital vows that lead people to leaving the faith. This kind of abuse or this kind of harshness can lead people to fall away. A lot of us probably know people who grew up in a Christian home with exceedingly strict, harsh parents who rejected the faith. They they rejected the faith because what they saw did not line up with the, with the real gospel. And too many of my peers have left the faith because their parents were trying to be too harsh. This isn't a parenting talk, but let us not be so harsh that we lead others, lead our children, lead others to fall away. The second is distortion. Distorting the gospel by adding to or taking away from the simple gospel message of faith in Jesus for salvation. It's the distorting the gospel is either the gospel plus something 
or it's something lesser than the gospel message. Examples of adding to the gospel today would be like the Catholic Church's teachings that faith alone does not save you. They say faith alone plus works. So faith plus the, the doing the rites of the church, you know, marriage vows, taking communion, you know, they would say that this is a, a way that we receive grace. That's not what we believe the Bible teaches. So they're saying it's faith plus something. Let me just clarify. The gospel plus anything is not the gospel. The gospel plus anything is not the gospel, but there's also ways of taking away from presenting something that is a lesser gospel, something that is less than. One example of that today might be what, what a lot of us call today the progressive gospel. Maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. The, pro- the progressive gospel is a lesser gospel because it minimizes or cuts out pieces altogether to make the gospel more palatable. The progressive gospel is summed up well by the term me-ology. It's all about me. The, go- the progressive gospel is all about you coming first, following your dreams, and tailoring your faith in Jesus as a means to add something to your life. This stands in stark contrast to our Savior who said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is not here to help you live your best life now. Jesus is not here to add a nice little piece to your otherwise great life. Jesus is here to be your life. In, in the, both the Old and the New Testaments, Jesus is referred to as a cornerstone. Now, I'm not much of a builder as Many here can testify. I'm not much of a builder, but I do know this. A cornerstone does not fit anywhere else in the building. If you try to have a nice building and then add a 12,000 pound cornerstone onto the top of it, it's going to crush everything else. Jesus is meant to be our cornerstone. He is our firm foundation. And saving faith in Jesus oftentimes looks a lot like clearing the slate of everything else we had going in our lives and saying, I don't know about all that other stuff, but I do know this. I'm building everything on Jesus. The progressive gospel says you don't have to do that. Brothers and sisters, this is wrong. We must not fall prey to the trap of compromising the gospel, even if it's one step at a time. I want to make clear that this doesn't mean that every change is some kind of compromise, right? I mean, every change is not compromised. The way that we do some things is going to change from time to time. Even the Apostle Paul changed his, uh, his uh, approach, you know, in, from one chapter of Acts to another chapter of Acts. We're not saying that all change is compromised, but I do want to say this. What Jesus says is, woe to the one who distorts the gospel, leaving a stumbling block in their wake. And I want to say something too here as, as we talk about the progressive gospel a little bit. Oh, uh, I, I brought this book to, uh, 
plug it a little bit. If, if you are curious to know what is the progressive gospel, it's one of the theologies that is coming up more and more now that I think a lot of people are falling prey to. Uh, I read this book a while back. Uh, Alyssa Childers uh, absolutely nails it. And if you are in any kind of ministry right now working with other people, I would strongly encourage you to, to take a look at this book. Uh, I have it right here right now if you uh, if you want to grab. Well, maybe in like 20 minutes. But anyway, um, I want to say something clearly here, though, as, as we talk about all this stuff. While we do want to be careful about our theology, we do not want to discourage questions. If you've got questions, it is so much better to ask them. Ask your questions. We aren't afraid of your questions. So if, if, if you've come in here and you're like, well, what about this and what about that? And there, there are good questions to ask. There, there are some probably bad questions to ask too, but bring them. We're not afraid of those. I have seen too many of my peers, people I went to Bible college with, people that I trained up in youth ministry here, who walked away from the faith because they felt like you couldn't ask anything at church, that you couldn't ask any questions. So we're not going to be that kind of people. Ask the questions. Ask them to an elder. Ask them to a deacon. Ask them to the people in the sound booth. Um... The third way that we see a uh, third kind of stumbling block here is conflation. Now, conflation, I was encouraged to define this word, uh, and conflation is the merging of two or more ideas into one, treating two similar but disparate subjects as the same. So where the gospel, this is where the gospel of Jesus has added cultural or traditional parts that are inseparable in our presentation. Not too long ago, you might remember, it was considered a really good idea for missionaries from America to go out into third world countries and to present along with the gospel Western culture. And so you'd see in these very poor third world countries, you'd see people walking around in suits and ties. I mean, like the the people from that country walking around in suits and ties, and it looked very weird. But that's what Christians do, they thought. The problem with this is it makes unnecessary barriers to the gospel because it blurs what people may be accepting or rejecting. Those missionaries often found people rejecting the gospel because they didn't like Western culture. So it wasn't Jesus they were rejecting, but Western culture. We must be aware of conflation of the gospel with anything else. Today, this conflation can look like the pairing of faith with Jesus or faith in Jesus, with a certain political view. Someone may be open to the gospel, but has a visceral reaction to your political viewpoint. They think they're rejecting Christianity, but they're really just rejecting your political ideology. And please hear me on this. We must be very careful that we're not causing stumbling blocks to our neighbors because our mouths are more full of the message of our political leanings than full of the message of Jesus. We cannot create unnecessary obstacles for for unbelievers to see Jesus. See, the gospel is clear. The gospel is simple. 
But people are complicated. We complicate it. We obscure the gospel through our behavior. We distort the gospel. We bring so much baggage with the gospel. But what we need to do is we need to clarify the gospel. We need to hold on to the gospel. And we need to ensure that what we pass on to others is the pure, simple gospel. Well, what does Jesus say to those who put out stumbling blocks? leading people away from the simple gospel. He says, woe. Woe is a strong pronouncement of rejection, of denouncement. Jesus has strong words of dire consequences to those that would uh, create barriers to the gospel for others. In fact, he says that the sure death of drowning, which I think is the second fear to public speaking and in having everything go wrong at the beginning, um, uh, he says that the, the, the sure death of drowning would be a better alternative for you than that you present something to someone else that creates a stumbling block. So here we have Jesus' command in this passage. Very simple. Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. This is in the present active imperative. We're to actively watch out for false teaching and sin that might make us stumble. We're to watch out for ourselves, to watch our beliefs, to constantly come back to the scriptures, to make sure that what we're believing and teaching is lined up with what God's word says. And this is why we so often encourage daily Bible reading, encourage you to be in the word regularly, because you know what? You're a lot harder to fool. You're a lot harder to trick if you are regularly taking in God's word. Some of us spend so much time on our phones, whether that's on news sites or social media sites or whatever. We spend so much time listening to the noise of the world that God's word sounds a little bit foreign and it sounds like a just it's kind of hard to connect with sometimes i want to encourage you we need to stick close to God's word the gospel is simple but humans are complicated as timely as jesus words were to his disciples then they could have been spoken by Jesus to the church today. We must be on guard for what seeks to add to the gospel of Jesus. Jesus goes on to describe, though, another way we can complicate things and create stumbling blocks to the simple gospel. And that's this. In Luke 17, moving on 3 through 4. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, this word for sin that Jesus uses here, this is the more common use of the word sin. It's, it's hamartia, the more common word. Uh, but two big questions arise from this passage as we look at it. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Does that mean that I rebuke every brother or sister who ever sins against me? I don't think that we can or should do that. If we did that, that's all we would do. <laughs> I'm very grateful. A marriage would be impossible. Uh, but there's a big difference between someone saying something that's maybe careless, maybe someone doing something that's like, oh, okay, that was, that was weird. 
and someone being the kind of person who's constantly doing that to others. I think that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. We're not called to be the sin police for each other. But listen to this. We are called to be close enough to each other that when we notice trends in each other's lives, we can take the time to lovingly rebuke one another. Today, most people just stop hanging around people who are difficult. Stop hanging around people who tend to maybe sin against them a lot. But we are called to lovingly rebuke one another and forgive one another. The other big question that comes out of this is, of course, it says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, then you got to forgive him. So if he doesn't repent, does that mean I don't have to forgive him? I'm off the hook. I can be angry at him. I can hate him. I can do the passive aggressive thing and I can just say like, Mm-mm, no more. Or I could say like, I'm going to cancel you. Or I could do the less passive aggressive thing. And actually, instead of talking to him about the sin, I could just go talk about him to everybody else. No, <laughs> no. I mean, other scriptures would bear on this, but it's pretty clear from other scriptures that what we're to have toward others is a heart of forgiveness. When we recognize what God has done for us, that God has seen all of our sin, not only the stuff that we've done, you know, previously, but all the stuff that we're going to do. He paid the price for it in full. When you sin against me, you don't owe me anything. And I don't need your repentance in order to have that heart. But what Jesus, I believe, is talking about here is he's talking about the reconciliation of a relationship. Too often someone sins against someone else and there's, there's a hard heart and there's, I don't want to, I don't want to be reconciled to that person. And one person might have a heart of forgiveness toward the other, but if, if, if that person never repents, That relationship is going to be strained. Have you seen that before? Have you seen that before? I sure have. One of, please listen to this, one of the greatest ways we as a church are often so immature is that someone sins against us in a big way and we don't say anything to them. This will destroy us. We need to trust Jesus enough to take him at his word and go to that person and gently, lovingly rebuke them. So many of us don't go to someone else because we're worried about their response. Let me tell you, trust Jesus enough. You let that person sort it out with God. I've seen way too many people leave a church over a broken relationship. I've seen way too many relationships destroyed, leading to a falling out and a falling away because either the offended party won't go to the brother or sister or because the other person just would refuse to listen. This is not what Jesus has called us to. But one of the most common ways we stumble and make others stumble is a lack of forgiveness. Paul had a situation uh, in Corinth and he begged the Corinthian church. uh, There there was somebody who had fallen into sin. And I'm just going to read the last little bit of this here. Somebody had fallen into sin. They put him out of the church and they said, we're disciplining you. But, you know, we want to see you be reconciled to God. The person was repentant. And this is what he says. Just look at the last little bit there. It's in bold. 
I want you to forgive him and restore him so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Y'all, Satan uses sin to create division that can lead to deconstruction through a lack of forgiveness. One of the church's most secret and worst problems with pushing people away, of making people stumble, losing the faith, is a lack of forgiveness. The lack of willingness to obey Jesus and go to that person. The lack of ears to hear when somebody is rebuking you. It is, it's hard to trick someone who's aware of your tricks. One of the shows that I've uh, watched occasionally are these uh, famous magicians, these very accomplished magicians, Penn and Teller. Uh, and the show Fool Us is uh, kind of a clever show. These two magicians, Penn and Teller, they sit and they watch uh, someone do a performance, a, a magic performance. And so what's really interesting is the show is really them trying to figure out what that guy or gal is doing, how they did it. And what is fascinating to me about the show is when that person is doing their thing, I have no idea how they're doing any of it. And I'm just bamboozled by the whole thing like, whoa, that is so crazy cool. And then you hear Penn and Teller say, well, I know how you did the card thing. I know where you got the rabbit from and I know how you did this thing. What we can't figure out is, did you have a relationship with this person in the past so that you had a plant or whatever? And, and like they've got so much of it figured out. And then they're just like, but just this one little element. Why is that? is because they're not ignorant of the schemes. They're not ignorant of sleight of hand. They know what it looks like. They've seen it before. In fact, they do it, which is not applicable here. But um, the <laughs> but too many in the church, we treat our relationships like Jesus never said this. We are totally bamboozled by Satan's designs. And so many times we... Just go with what feels right. And we harden our hearts. And we won't listen to what God wants to do. We are to be, (laughs) this is exhausting, but we are to be rebuking one another. We are to be uh, forgiving one another. We are to be in relationships that are tight enough that all this stuff can come out. And we're supposed to have these kinds of relationships that someone can call it into question without, call us into question without destroying that relationship. That's church. That's what church is. It's not really oftentimes best done on a Sunday morning. This kind of relationship is really fostered in the week, at our midweek gatherings, whether that's your men's breakfast or life group or or whatever. But we are supposed to be vulnerable with one another. And I've got so many things that I'm just going right past here. But listen to this. We don't want to create stumbling blocks for one another. So what what do the disciples say to all this? I love this. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. And is, you know, they're saying, Lord, if we're going to do all this stuff, we're going to need a lot of faith, like a lot. And, and Jesus reminds him once again that the gospel is simple. It's people that are complicated. It's not about the amount of faith. It's that your faith is in the right place. 
Now, you might have heard this message today, and many like it, and maybe you've never placed your faith in Jesus. Do you believe in the simple gospel message? Or are you complicating everything like we all tend to do? Today, you can turn from the sinful, destructive ways of the world that you've walked in and be united with Jesus by faith. Be one with Jesus today. The gospel is simple. Jesus is the risen and reigning king. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. His name is faithful and true. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he bled on that cross to cover your sin. Will you be united with him today by believing in him? I'm going to pray. And as we pray, I'm going to ask us to close our eyes. There might be some here today who have heard this message and it's not me that you're hearing. You hear God's voice calling you. Maybe you can pray along with me. Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are the king of the universe. I have sinned against you. I've broken your good commands. But this morning I put my trust in Jesus as my only hope, as my cornerstone. Your son, given for me, dying for me, and raised from the dead. Lord, I put my trust in you today. Give me new life by the power of the resurrected Jesus. Amen.